Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. doing is we're gonna we took questions from people for about three or four weeks and we gathered those questions and from the questions we've developed our teachings today we're gonna answer three different questions now here's what we discovered and we discovered what I hoped I was gonna discover and is that uh, the type of questions that we have some of what we're struggling with some of what we need to know a little bit more of and some of it was absolutely foundational to our faith and so here's what we've decided to do we, uh, rather than trying to answer 10 questions this morning and give everything a two-minute answer, which doesn't do anybody any good, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take one of these questions, every one of our prayer services, and, that, uh, and we're going to take 10 minutes in those prayer services, and we're just going to answer another question. So we'll be praying, we'll be worshiping, because the questions that we have that we're, still need to be answered are questions such as, well, what's, what's the Trinity? Questions of, can I lose my salvation? Questions of, uh, how do you know you're saved? Those are, I mean, those are, those are huge questions. And we probably would have chosen those questions first, but they came in the last two days. And so we have to approach them. And this is what it also tells me. We're about to go through the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is an amazing theological work. It is, it is phenomenal. And some of those questions are going to be unpacked as we go through the book of Ephesians for the summer. And so we're going to be able to hit some of those answers without even saying, hey, here's the question. It's going to come out in the teaching of Ephesians. What we're also going to do for our church family, and we hope that everybody will participate in it, is that we will have a devotional that get, goes out every week. And it'll, it'll be in your bulletin. It can be online. And it will be, reflect the teaching we just did. And it'll be a five-day devotional. There'll be questions you can answer, things you can think about, ways that will lead you in prayer, and other passages you can look up to continue to study these amazing theological truths. The first three books of Ephesians unpacks our faith and what it is, how we came to it, what Jesus Christ did for us, how he brought us together. The second three books talks about how we live out this amazing faith. It is going to be a great study and an amazing time for us to work through a book of the Bible together. So, we're looking forward to those two things. We just wanted you to know, if your question isn't answered, we're going to get to the questions. And uh, we had so many really, really good ones. They came a little bit later on in the week. We're not going to ignore them. We absolutely can't. Um, I don't know, if there were questions like I said that crazy one about a belly button, we would ignore that one. But that's not what the questions were. So we're going to answer every one of them. But today, we're going to start with Doug. You had a question. So the first question uh, I'm going to tackle is, uh, it's really two parts, and I'm going to try and tackle it both at the same time, though. So the first question is, what is the importance of the Genesis narrative, and what is the relevance of how God accomplished creation for believers today? And since we've been making our way through the Word over the last year, we've been in the 365 plan, uh, this question has been pretty common. It's been a question that's come up in a, a couple different ways. Uh, and uh, really the best way for me to tackle it, and I think for, for anyone who reads uh, Genesis, the, the Genesis narrative through one and two, is to kind of just look for the timeless truths, to look for the theological truths that, that never change. 
because culture will change and, and our understanding of things might change. But the timeless truths, the theological pieces that come out of Genesis 1 and 2 are absolutely foundational for our faith. If we don't understand some of the things that happen in Genesis 1, uh, we're less. Not that we're any less, but our understanding of who God is is less. Uh, we have a faulty premise to work with. And so uh, the very first thing that, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 1, and the first thing you'll see is that God is first and was not created. God is first and was not created. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2 say this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Did he see it in the first four words? In the beginning, God. You can stop right there. In the beginning, God. He was there from eternity past and will continue to be there in eternity future. God was there by himself, completely self-sufficient and self-contained, completely whole. He didn't need anything apart from himself. God was perfectly fine by himself. And then the next word, God created. So he's there and then he goes about creation. God is first and he was not created. He is the creator. God is the creator God, not the created God. He is not something that is made by the clever, cleverness of our minds, by the work of our hands. God was there. God was absolutely first. He wasn't dependent on creation for anything. And these truths are, this truth is important because it, it really begins to display the character of God. Uh, this truth is the foundation which scripture will build upon. It's revealed here in this one moment, but it will continue to get grander and grander. And God's display of, of his self-sufficiency will grow as we look through the New Testament and the Old Testament. And without this truth being incorporated into our worldview, we're lacking our personal lives are lacking. Because if we don't understand that God is first, it'll be in this moment, God is first. In creation, God is first. It's difficult then in our own life to say God is first. If we can't put God first above all things, you're never gonna do it in your own life. If you can't recognize that God was here before the beginning, you won't ever do it in your own life personally. And so this is foundational for us. And not only that, if he's not first, the next two points don't mean anything. The next two truths that we're about to pack don't mean anything to you. If you don't agree that God was there first and he wasn't created, he didn't need to be created, the next two really don't mean anything. See, in, in Genesis 1, it sets us running. God was there, and then the, the next word is created. And I love that it follows that immediately because it re reveals that God alone was the one bringing about creation. God created everything without need of anyone else. He was the one who was the only actor. You see, there's a pattern that Genesis gives us. And it's pretty easy. It, follow along on the screens. Starting in Genesis 3, it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. Then, and God said, Let there be a fault between the waters to separate water from water. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and the trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kind. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. 
And God said, let there be light in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. You see, the pattern is simple. God speaks, and it is so. God speaks and life comes. God speaks over and over again. And after each iteration of his voice, something is created out of nothing. God creates the entirety of the created world with the power of his voice. God speaks and brings about life. And that is absolutely foundational. God, whenever he speaks, brings about life. Genesis is proclaiming it in terms of the created world. But as a New Testament reader, as someone uh, thousands of years in the future, I could look at it and say, whenever God's word is spoken, it brings about new life. Whenever we open the words of scripture and we listen to the words of God, new life is to be had. It absolutely will always bring about new life. It will renew us in him. And so the pattern hasn't changed since Genesis. God speaks and the new life is created. And not only is it created, he sees that it is good. He rejoices when new life is brought into our lives. When we're renewed by, this, by his word, it's always good. God, God's pattern hasn't changed. And so in Genesis, we see this pattern established and then it carries out for us today. And not only that, God does a little bit something different when he starts to, to make us. You see, because we're the image bearers of God. He speaks and, and new life is brought. And then in verse 26, it changes just a little bit. You see, it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. You see, uh, what we don't get there is the real pause, because in Genesis 2, when we, we jump just a little bit further, he actually talks about the creation of man. God speaks, let us make man in our image. And he's saying, I'm going to give them a little bit of myself. I'm going to create them to look like me. But then he doesn't just let his words do the actions. He doesn't let the words do the creating. He stops and he makes us. He actually doesn't just use his words. It talks about him forming us. And so there's something very different about us in creation. Humanity is unique in comparison to the rest of the world. We're not here by some biological accident or random circumstance. God 100% made us different. And because God made us, formed us, and breathed life into us, we are intrinsically valuable. We share some of God's characteristics. Uh, some of the characteristics we can experience because we are the image bearers of God are things like goodness, justice, knowledge, rationality, mercy, truthfulness, speech, wisdom, and the ability to appreciate beauty. Because we are the image bearers of God, we are different among creation. And not only that, we then have the power to do what point two talked about, 
We get to speak God's words into people's life and see it bring about a new life within them. We get to partake. We get to be partakers of the divine nature. When we declare the gospel, we're bringing about new life. And so Genesis matters. Genesis matters because without it, we're lacking. Without it, we don't get to know the fact that I am intrinsically valuable because God created me. He created me uh, to look like him, to be like him, to speak like him, to give life to people just like him. Genesis is important because it reminds us he's first and we're not. We want to put ourselves in that pedestal, but we have no power that he doesn't give us. He's the creator God who gives his creation great power, but we always get it flipped. And so Genesis is important because it lays that foundation. It's easy to bypass because it's a story we hear as, as kids. It it's almost seems ridiculous in our day and age, but it's the most important foundational piece of scripture. Without it, nothing else gets laid down. No other theological tr or truth gets built up. And so it's important for us to know that. We're unique among his creation. And then as, as we go and we think about that, that's really the answer for that one. But then we look at God in the Old Testament and sometimes people say, is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? And that's really the second question I'm going to tackle and they move in really well together. Is the God of the Old Testament, the God who seems so wrathful and so hateful and so vengeful, is he different than Jesus? Is he different than the way he's revealed in the New Testament where he's loving and kind and, and just so gentle? And the simple answer is no. And Tim said I couldn't just leave you with one word answer, and so I'm going to unpack it just a little bit more for you. But know this, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character is unchanging. His plans and purposes have not changed at all. He has never once just made a, a quick course correction and said, I'm, I'm going a different way now. He's always been moving towards the same goal, and his character has always stayed the same. And so uh, Malachi says this, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. God is declaring that he's the same person in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, James says this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God is declaring, I'm unchanging. I won't change. And if you don't understand that, you have a bad view of God because you can't trust him. This is absolutely important. If God changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you can't change or trust him. You can't take his promises to the bank. But he is the same. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And the, the sticking point is the wrath versus God's love. And as I was thinking about it, the Old Testament is a 60,000 view of God, 60,000 foot view of God. It's so grand. God pulls back and says, look at how I move among the nations. I've been nations to my will. I make things happen on, an, on a social and a political scale that no one else can. And then he turns the page and, and we get the minor prophets and he scales down to maybe a, a 15,000 view of God. And we see him kind of talking with one or two people and he reveals his will to his people. And then we get to the New Testament and we get a five-foot view of who God is because God is walking on this earth and he says, I want to love you in this way. I want to give my compassion, but he hasn't changed. 
Because God's love was displayed in Genesis 3 when instead of destroying the world for our sins, he closed those who sinned against him. His love is displayed in in Egypt where he brings his people out of bondage. It's displayed in the judges where he brings his people back to himself over and over again. It's displayed in the the cycle of uh, our sinning or Israel sinning and his bringing us back into repentance. God's love is clearly on display in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, his wrath is wholly in display. God, is, God as Jesus is absolutely loving and he stoops down and he, he cares for people. Yet in Mark 9, when he sees the little children, he says, don't you dare. Don't you dare cause one of these little children to stumble. Because if you do, it's better that you would tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into a lake. That's better than what I have in store for you. Romans 1, verse 19, 18 and 19 says, God's wrath is being declared for all of us to see. And he's making a new way known. And then in Revelation 19, we see Jesus coming back. Jesus, the one who stooped down and loved and brought the woman at the well back into his presence. Jesus, the one who, who took care of the orphans and the widows, says, I'm coming back with vengeance. I will destroy everything that is not holy. And that is what Jesus does. We cannot have his love without his wrath. And we cannot have his wrath without his love. But when God sees unholiness, his wrath comes out and it's the only just and right reaction. And then there's moments where Jesus or God restrains himself and says, I'm going to have compassion even though you should experience my wrath. I'm going to give you mercy even though you deserve death. I'm going to give you grace freely even though you don't deserve it. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character is unchanging, and his plans are not going in a different direction. His his ultimate plan is always to bring you and me back into right relationship. We just see it from different perspectives throughout the Bible. There's nothing else that we need to know other than his character is always the same. It's a good day. (laughs) I met him when he was 17. Not 17 anymore. You unpacked that well, my friend. Thank you. Church, we were blessed this morning. We could spend a lot more time in there. Theology books, right? It's a very clear, concise understanding of those two questions. Very clear. There's a man in, uh, he had a really, Difficult news, news that his child was going to die. It was going to happen in the next few days. Doctors couldn't do anything. Nobody could do anything at all. The end of his life was coming. And this man did all he knew how to do. The only thing left turned to the providential God that gives life, the one who's over all things. And he began to weep and began to cry and he began to fast and he began to call out to the living God and said, save my son. Save my son. And as the days passed, as the time passed, about a week passed, his friends approached him and he said, tell me the news. He said he has passed away. Another man was convicted of a crime he didn't commit. 
His father had the ability to step in and help. His father had the ability to influence and change the minds of the courts and the jurors. He pleaded, Father, help me. Father, step in. And he pleaded and he pleaded to God that his father would move. He pleaded to God that his father would change directions. He pleaded. And in the end, this innocent man was sentenced to death and died the death of a criminal. And his innocence was certain. The question that was given was this. I prayed earnestly, but God did not give me the desire of my heart. Every one of us in this room has experienced this pain. Every one of us in this room has gone to God with the desire of our heart, and he has said no. We've also gone and he has said yes. We've also gone and he has said not right now. Psalms 37, 4 says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. <laughs> but I prayed in my desire. In Matthew 9, I mean, Matthew 7, 9 through 11, it says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I asked him for a good thing. I asked him that my son would live. I asked him for a good thing. That I wouldn't die for a crime I didn't commit. I asked him for a good thing. But he said no. Both of these passages speak to us aligning ourselves with the will of God. Both of these passages speak to us delighting ourselves in God's will, in God's plan, and in God's way. And then in aligning that, asking for that to become the desire of our heart and for that to be granted. And why is it that we need to align with him? Because of this. We want what we want. That's the bottom line. We want what we want. And it's almost always based upon our feelings. It is absolutely 100% based upon our scope of knowledge that exists about this big. It is based upon what our idea of fairness is. It is based upon our idea, a sinful person, of what justice is. And so we go to God with the desires of our heart that come from a selfish person. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's not selfish when I want something good for somebody else. You're still wanting what you want. The question is, will we want what God wants? As his people, as his creation, who have been created by him for his works, under his hand, by his authority, will we want what he wants? Listen to the condition of our heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? When a young child is sitting there and he's not surviving and he is, his death is imminent and we're praying, Lord, save this one, save this one. 
do we know what is truly best for that child? Is it truly best that that child stays here? I'm not here to answer that question. I don't know. I don't know. Is there any way that that could be best for the parents that will lose their child? I'm not here to answer that question. I can guarantee it will be the most difficult and gut-wrenching pain they have ever experienced in their lifetime. But I do know that the, the heart is deceitful above all things. And even when I want something that seems good, I could be deceiving myself about from what is best. What is, has eternal value? What is best for God's great creation? What is best in the scope of his plan for all mankind and all humanity and, and, and for his entire kingdom? and for all eternity. My heart could be deceiving me about what is best. Matthew 15 says this, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile the words, right? These defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts of murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Those are the things that dwell in our hearts, and that means that they help to form the words that come out of our mouth so often. If those words aren't brought before the Lord and said, Lord, would you direct the words? Would you direct my thoughts? Would you direct my desires? Because what wells up from in me comes from a sinful place, a selfish place, a place that desires my best, even when I'm calling out for the best of somebody else. It doesn't mean we're wrong to call out. It doesn't mean that when we ask for healing for somebody that we're wrong. It doesn't mean anything like that at all. It just means we must acknowledge that our hearts are impure. It means that our hearts desire what is easier for us. Our hearts desire what is less painful for us. Our hearts desire that which is in conflict with God. And it is the person who has been saved by Jesus Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, whose life is submitted to Christ, that seeks to have their heart transformed, that seeks to constantly align their heart, their will, and their desire to the Lord's. Our Father is all-powerful and knowing. He is everywhere through all time. God never acts in a limited fashion. He never acts in a small time, in a small space, because he is always, always acting in all of eternity. He is always acting and responding in his, in his eternal position as the eternal God of all things. Which means when he chooses a path or a choice, he has eternity in mind, something we can't have. Deuteronomy 34, 32.4 says this, He is the rock, his words are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Psalms 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Every one of our lives, every day of our life has been written. There's no accidents. There's no, there's no chances. There's no maybe stuff. God has ordained the day that we come 
and we go. He is the one. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If you can figure it out, then you are worthy of our worship. If I can figure it out, then I am worthy of your worship. If I can know all things, then I am worthy of your worship. If you can know all things, now none of us measures up to that, not one of us. The reason why God is worthy of our worship because he knows all things, he is everywhere, he is all powerful. There is not one thing that is out of his control or his providence. He is everywhere all the time. He is worthy of our worship because of who he is and his great providence. Why is that important? Because there's not one thing in this world that he's not aware of, he doesn't know, and that he doesn't have ultimate authority over. Ultimate authority. He is bringing about the fulfillment of his kingdom. He is bringing about the way and measure for people to come to know him. He is bringing about change in people's lives. And he uses whatever means necessary to do that. And it was always known to him before the beginning of time. Ephesians 1.11 says this, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to his plan, the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose and will. All things he has sovereignty over. And he works in all things. And he works within us, calling us into a closer relationship with us, using our pain and tragedy to call others into a close relationship with him, saving people's lives, advancing his kingdom. And what does he want us to do? He wants our hearts to conform to his will because it's best. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is the way we're supposed to go to the Lord, to ask him for his will. Jesus, when he gave us the example of prayer, he said, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're to pray for, that his kingdom would come that his will would be done right here, even if his will in this situation hurts me. Conform my will to yours. Conform my desires to yours, Lord, because I want what is best. I don't just want my desires. In John 1, 5, 14 through 15, and this is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears it. And we know that he hears us whatever we ask. And we know that we have the request that we have asked of him when it conforms with his will. So Lord, keep conforming me. Keep moving me. As I pray and as I come to you, keep moving my prayers to align with you. And Father, the work you do in my life when I don't like it, 
when I don't want it? Would you align my response to worship of you? Would you align the desire of my heart to want what has just taken place? Would you align the desire of my heart to walk with you faithfully, knowing that your ways are better than my ways? Would you align that? The man that lost his child, his name was King David. And King David, a man after God's own heart, prayed and asked and fasted and pleaded that God would save his child. And he didn't. Can't go through the whole story. But in light of that death, there was another child that was conceived and raised. And that child was King Solomon, who the covenant that was promised back in Abraham would continue to pass through, leading the way to Jesus. We don't know all of God's plans. We don't know why he does the things he does. We can't always see the picture coming together. But his plans are always greater than ours. His thoughts are always greater than ours. And he is always trustworthy and true. The man that was accused of a crime he didn't commit was Jesus Christ. And he pleaded in the garden, would there be a different way to his own father? Would there be a different way? And Yahweh God said, no, this is the way. If he said that of his own son to save each and every one of us who gives their lives to him in order that there would be salvation and there would be restoration in our relationship. We would no longer be enemies of God. We'd be brought into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ because of the death that he would have to die for us, taking on the penalty of our sins, even though he was sinless. If the Father knew all that was to transpire, and if his heart, that they would be separated for the first time in all eternity, because of the sin that would be levied against his son who did nothing. The pain that must have existed in his heart. And yet he still said, no, there's no other way. I will lay the life of my son down. His plans are bigger than ours. His thoughts are more vast than ours. He sees a picture we can't even comprehend. It doesn't mean there won't be pain, because there will be pain. It doesn't mean he won't do the exact thing we pray for at times, because he will. It doesn't mean he doesn't have power to heal, because he absolutely does. He will do that which is best for his kingdom. He will do that which is best for his people. And we have to trust that that is the case and conform our will to his will. We can pray for the desire of our heart, but we need to pray that that desire will conform to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You're an amazing God. You're all powerful, you're all knowing. You wouldn't spare your son, you wouldn't spare the king that was after your own heart, you wouldn't spare a one of us because you love us far too much. 
because you are intimately involved and absolutely aware of all that we are and all that we're doing. You see our steps long before we'll ever take them. You knew our life before we were even created. You knew all that was gonna transpire and take place and you made the outrageous, outlandish, incredible promise that you would be there with us and never leave us nor forsake us. We would go through the difficult times knowing that you had the vision to conform our hearts to what it is that you're doing. We would go through the the gut-wrenching times of this life knowing that you had the vision to bring us through what it is you were doing. You promised to never leave us, forsake us. You said that your strength and your power is enough to see us through. You said to set our eyes on you and you would transform us. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you created us. We thank you that you are unchanging and never change. And we thank you that your power is far greater than ours. Your knowledge is far more vast than ours. And we thank you that you would not give in to our will, but that your will would be done. You're an amazing holy God. And this morning, collectively as one body in one place, as one people, we thank you. And we say in your precious son's name, amen.